bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall ye not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. Thou hast bought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities." I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance, let us plead together, declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Thy first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. Thus far in the reading of God's own true and precious word. I invite you again to open God's word in Isaiah chapter 43. We have a precious passage before us. To, to assist us in once again looking at the figures of forgiveness. You'll remember that we have in preparation for some Lord's Suppers um, begun a, a series looking at the different figures in God's Word of forgiveness. We have looked at three so far. This will be the fourth one. We have seen forgiveness of sins as a canceling of a debt. That was the first one that we saw. The second figure was that of forgiveness as washing away of something that would be dirty, something that would have a stain or a blemish upon it, the washing away of sin. We've seen also the figure of erasing or blotting out as if of a criminal record. And now we will see forgiveness in the figure of not remembering sin. In each one of these, sin itself becomes a figure, is explained by way of a figure. And this is how we begin our our first point, sin as a memory. If forgiveness of sin is the not remembering sin... Well, then it's because sin is, in a sense, as a memory. It is as a record in the mind. In each one of those figures that we have looked at, sin also had its figure. In in forgiveness, as the canceling of debt, sin took the figure of a debt that is to be canceled. Um, In the figure of forgiveness, as washing away of something that is undesirable, sin itself is as a stain, it is as a blemish, it is as a dirty thing that must be washed away. And that figure of forgiveness as erasing um, of a criminal record, sin is the criminal record. Sin is the crime that was committed. And it is a record Um, Now, we will look at the idea of memory, and this is what sin is. Sin is a memory. It is a record in the mind. And so, it's amazing how each one of these figures of forgiveness 
are enlarging the reality of God's forgiveness of our sins more and more. When we connect just the last two, um, the record of sin that would be erased or blotted out could be um, on papyrus, if we think of those days and where they kept record. Or it could be even on a stone. And it would be engraven there in a way that would be very hard to erase. So the word then is that it would be blotted out. Like the whole part of where that would be engraven is marred so that no one can even read what was written there. Remember that whole reality of how some of the writing could be done on a wax tablet where you wanted to blot everything out. You would just um, get the word or the whole record that had to be blotted out and it would be just a pressing upon that wax so that nobody could read the characters that had been there and then you would write over there the characters that were desirable. Or you could, of course, blot out the whole thing by simply melting the wax again and creating a smooth surface all over again. That's the whole picture of of erasing, blotting. And yet that all dealt with places like a papyrus and a rock or a wax tablet or wherever else in the ancient days or even of today that you would keep records, think computers. But what about the mind? What about the mind of God? Because you could even say, well, God is sovereign and it will always stay in his mind. And it's true. But God even uses a figure of forgiveness where sin as a memory would be erased even there in the mind of God. And this is why I'm very careful to put in the theme of today when God chooses to not remember. We cannot say, of course, that God forgets in the sense that He really would because He can't. And this is why this is a figure. Of course, God will always have in His sovereign mind that can never, ever, ever forget. He is perfect. There is complete data storage in a way that is absolutely impeccable. God never forgets anything. But in using this figure where God says in verse 25 of Isaiah 43, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. So notice how the figure that we look at today is based upon the figure that we looked at before. I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. And so God is saying, since, yes, it could be on the rock, it could be on papyrus, it could be on wax tablets, whatever it would be, I blotted your sins out there. And yes, theologically speaking, it's in my mind, but I will remember it no more. That means I will choose not to remember it. It is, as it were, an active act of forgetting. So in this whole sermon, if I speak in terms of God forgetting, you understand I'm putting it in this parenthesis of an act of not remembering, of putting it aside, even in his own mind. Not to say that he is literally in this complete sense, but he is doing it whereby he will not bring it it again as an accusation against his own. God chooses to not remember. And it works together with the blotting out of sin. If this whole concept wasn't here, we would think, yes, he took it away out of the books, but it's still in his mind. And God wants you to understand. Remember, we saw this is a dynamic thing about all of these figures. There are so many figures of forgiveness. And God means with that to help you and me understand He really means it. He really wants to forgive sins. And He wants us to understand how precious and how true and how complete this forgiveness really is. Where even though it may be in the mind, He chooses not to have it forefront in the mind. He he chooses to simply put it aside. He says, I, for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Now, 
We know this does not mean that he erases it from his mind in a sovereign way by which he literally does not remember them anymore. We know it's not this because the very text shows that he remembers our sins. And and the reason I bring this out is we see it in the text. In the very text where he says that he remembers our sins no longer, he does remember the sins of his people. And the, the... impact that this brings is this Um, this is how gracious God is he has a mind that is incapable of forgetting but in the very center of of this whole portion where he's remembering the sins of God's people before and after this verse we're going to see there's the reality that he knows our sins but he says in the middle I'll forget them It just increases the element of mercy and the element of grace and how voluntary it is of God that He's willing to do this in forgiving our sins. And so to to bring this in perspective, let's let's look at the passage in its flow. Beginning in verse 14 of Isaiah 43 is, is this new little section. Verses 14 through 15, God is here, as in many of the places throughout Isaiah, Promising that even though God's people will be taken to Babylon and that will be discipline, He's here promising that they will come back. God does this in Isaiah. Remember, this, this is so precious. He tells them He will discipline them, but then He contains in this very scripture of Isaiah the promise that they will return. And remember how powerful that was. Imagine if you are now the few generations forward in Babylon, there in the midst of the discipline. You're understanding through the prophets. If you're listening to the good prophets and you're reading some of scripture, you're realizing we are here because of discipline. But the very scriptures that say this say that we will go back and imagine how these fathers and mothers could encourage the little children being born during those years of Babylon captivity knowing there will be hope we will go back it's just a matter of time And this is one of those portions in verse 14. Look, thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. So God promises the very nation that is taking you captive, I will deal with them. And then verse 15, he, he, he continues this, this connection with the people. He says, I am the Lord, your holy I'm one, the creator of Israel, your king. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. What, what he starts doing now is not only he went from the promise, he now speaks of the pattern. He, he will say how he's going to do it. And he, he reminds them of how he did it before. This is what happened when they left Egypt. There was a way in the sea. There was a path in the mighty waters. Look at verse 17. Which bringeth forth the chariot and horse. Boys and girls, chariots and horse. What does that come to mind? When do you remember chariots and horses and waters um, before in the Bible? Well, that was when God's people went through the dry land. Pharaoh and his army went right behind, but the waters fell upon them. Look at verse 17. The army and the power, they shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow. Well, that had happened to Egypt. God is saying it will happen to Babylon. And and, and not that the people, the, the army and all would be following them in the desert. It would be a different way. God will even show this, that it will be different. But it will be a deliverance. There will be a deliverance. And and then let's just continue the flow of the passage for me to get to where where I want in terms of sin as a memory. Um, God has their sins in His mind. But before He lines them all up, He's telling them, I will deliver you. you, you can be mindful of the days of Egypt, but then look how interesting. Um, in verse 18, he says not to be mindful. He says, Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. You know, the word remember here is very emphatic because he, he will use the word remember again a third time. And one of the times is, of course, 
what we've already said, where God says, I will remember your sins no more. Well, right now he's saying for you and me not to remember something, for the people of that day not to remember, not to remember the former things. What, what is God saying? Look, look at the next verse. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall ye not know it. I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Well, God reminds them of the deliverance from Egypt. But then he says, don't even think of that so much. Because what I will do is a new thing. There is glory in both of the ways that God has done this. And this glory will be shown in the novelty of this way. Um, There will be elements of newness in it that will be majestic. Um, Of course, you could say, well, opening the rivers is opening the Red Sea was even more majestic. The sense here is not to say which will be more majestic than the other. The idea here is that they both are majestic and don't even think of how it was because it will be a new thing. There will be elements that are great and majestic. And what are those elements? How could you say it was a new thing? Well, when we think of how God delivered them from Egypt, well, there were plagues, and there, there was like an army that was not allowing the people to go. It could give almost the impression that if it weren't for the plagues, it would never happen. And so ten plagues were necessary, and finally Pharaoh said that the people could go. To leave Babylon, there's not a single plague necessary. It's basically God saying, I didn't have to show those plagues because or else I couldn't do it. I just chose to do it that way. But now here's a new way. And Cyrus will say, God's people can go. Not one single plague from Babylon. Then you could say um, <clears throat> that, that in, um, in Egypt, when Egypt allowed people to go, they, they were the kingdom and there was really a harsh Um, reality to the very kingdom but they continued to become Egypt the new way that God did with Babylon is that he completely turned around that kingdom of Babylon remember in the book of Daniel we read how Belshazzar was the last king that very night that he saw the handwriting of the wall on the wall was the night that the Medes and the Persians entered Babylon and Cyrus became the king of the whole empire and Darius became the king in Babylon it was a whole complete turnover. See, it's, it's a new thing. This is how we can understand what God says in verse 19. Behold, I will do a new thing. There are a few more things we could say. Um, the new king, Cyrus, he was not a pharaoh. He was a willing king. He made a decree to let God's people go. So different from Pharaoh. And it's even showing. It's not that God had a hard time with Pharaoh. God could have turned Pharaoh's heart like he turned Cyrus's heart. But he allowed Pharaoh to be kept to his own. To to, to even show to us the danger of a heart that is left alone. And Cyrus, that is a heart whose God's grace is causing him to do the right decisions and go the right way. That was a new thing. Um, the, the deliverance from Babylon had a new thing in that there were three returns. Um, it wasn't just one movement of people. There were three big migrations from Babylon back to Israel. Another new thing is that there would be no 40 years in the wilderness. This is perhaps what we could read of the new thing when it says that there would be a path a way in the wilderness. Verse 19, you you see there it says, I will even make a way in the wilderness. It's like this time they had a highway from Babylon to Canaan. They weren't circling and going um, in different places. Forty years in wanderings in the desert. It was like from Egypt, there was no highway to Canaan. There could have been, if they had obeyed and weren't scared when the spies came back, it would have been a highway. But because they disobeyed, it became 40 years of wilderness. From Babylon to Canaan, it was like a highway. 
Just like we read in verse 19. I will even make a highway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. We never hear of complaining that there's no water. We never hear really of the sins of God's people in that whole distance. It was like there was a river. There was plenty of supply for God's people. So in all of these ways, it was new. And so this is what God is saying. And then, um, he, he, so he describes the promise, and then he describes the way. But notice verse 22. When we come to verse 22, we realize that God, God did not forget. God's mind is very, very clear and crisp. Look at verse 22. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. Thou hast bought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. This is perhaps one of the expressions that speaks of God's grieving because of our sins in a, in a most emphatic way. We'll, we'll explain it a little bit. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. You see how God remembers. Now, beloved, see, this is the shocking reality. God does, in the crispness of his mind, remember. In verse 25, we would think, in our, in our minds, if we would complete the words, I, even I, am he that blotteth out, we would think, this people out of the globe. I am the one who will start all over again with a new people. If your sins are from A to Z... Well, then I will show wrath and punishment, and you do not deserve any kind of forgiveness or grace. But no, it says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake, meaning not something you've done, it is all on me, my grace, and will not remember thy sins. See, this is what I mean. The not remembering sins does not mean that God does not remember sins. It means that he chooses not to remember. And he chooses to put it on the side so that it's not in the forefront of his mind where he will accuse them forever. Now, one, one thing about this whole list that God gives of, of their sins, it's basically a list that goes from A to Z of worship. It starts with prayer. Thou hast um, but thou hast not called upon me, that's prayer. But thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. So that's, we know this is worship because of the other words. He'll go through all kinds of sacrifices, burnt offerings, etc. So the idea it gives is that it's somebody who's tired of going to worship. It's somebody who sleeps while while worship is going on. It's somebody who would have gone to the temple and while there's even the burning of sacrifice, a lot of things are going on. People are there weeping because of their sins. The priests are there with, with blood going all over, the burning of cattle. There's a lot of activity, but there could be some little children saying, Daddy, do we need to be in the temple again? Or even older people. They were tired of worshiping God. So God is saying, you don't pray. You're tired of worshiping me. And then he goes through every kind of offering. Look what he says. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offering. So that's the small cattle that would be like the kid of the goats or the lamb. And, and he's saying, you're not doing that anymore. You don't have at least your heart in doing it. Neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. That's a word for all the general sacrifices because you know how there were very many different ones. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering. This is the food offering when it says offering um, in this phrase. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering. Verse 23 that's the food offering. And why, why does it say, I have not caused you? Because it's like God is leading now to the voluntary offerings. And he's saying, I've never forced any of this. The free will offerings are always free will offerings. I've never been twisting your arm for you to offer me all of those things. But see, th this is the connotation. 
you, you are tired of worshiping me and I haven't even poured upon you that worship is to be so elaborate and so great that you should be tired. But then he continues, um, nor wearied thee with incense. See, now the incense. They didn't have to bring incense. God is saying, I'm not piling it on you that you need to bring incense. Remember, if you were poor, you didn't even have to bring a small animal of the cattle. You could bring a pigeon or a turtle dove. It was God saying, I will go down as far as necessary so that worship will be simple and easy for you. And if you cannot afford the free will offerings, the food offerings, and the incense, don't worry. Don't do it. I just want your heart. You can imagine even somebody who could afford a turtle dove who could maybe be there at the sacrifice for the morning and the afternoon. Remember, those sacrifices were for everybody. So everything to a great degree had to do with the voluntary nature of worship. And God is saying, and you're even tired. And then verse 24 continues, one more element. Thou hast bought me no sweet cane with money. This sweet cane was the, the good-smelling calamus. It was, it, was, it was not part of the incense. It was part of an ingredient to put in the oil for anointing. And it wasn't also something they were obliged to do, but they would have to spend money in doing. And God is saying, you're not even wanting to spend money on serving me. Neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices. Remember, the fat was always to be given completely to the Lord on the altar. Now notice notice what God is doing. He's saying, I have not tired you in serving me. It hasn't been heavy. But you're tired. Now look at verse 24. But thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. So you see the contrast, what God is doing. You are tired in serving me, and I haven't even forced you to do some of the things that you're doing. You can imagine some people were saying, yeah, this is the food offering, because, I mean, if I don't offer it, what are people going to say? And will maybe God not forgive me if I don't add this? Oh, and the incense, oh, and the the calamus for the oil was so expensive, but I brought it this time, and a priest better use it and appreciate it. And God is saying, I never even told you to do it. But I'm bringing an oxen because, of course, I I, I want to show that I'm very repentant. And, And God is saying, it could even be a small little lamb. You're not even doing that. You see what's happening. The people are so tired of serving God, even in ways that God never pressed upon them. And what does God say? I'm tired Because you're forcing me to serve you in your sins. And beloved, I was thinking of that phrase. Isn't that the reality of the Christian life, beloved? Even in our best days, there's still sin. And what does God do? He serves us. He forgives us. He feeds us. Now think of us sitting at the table thanking God for that food. He's serving us, but not a single one of us around the table has no sins anymore. He's serving us with our sins. Now think of a heart that wants to sin. And what does God do? He gives them breath. He gives them a job. He gives them a family. He gives them children. So God is being forced, as it were, to serve with our sins. And you see, that degree goes increasing, however blunt our sinning is. And it is meant, of course, to bring a reproach to our hearts that we would repent and never think, well, since God does not remember, then I have permission. No. Look what Luther said. Luther said, sin is forgiven not so that we may continue in it, but that we may break loose from it. Otherwise, it would be called a permission and not a remission of sin. 
Now, it's true that in our weakness and in a weak heart, we might say, wow, forgiveness is great. And we may see it almost as a, as a ticket for indulging in sin. And the moment a heart does that, beloved, it is the moment that that heart should know it is not a repentant heart. And if you're not saved, it means you're not forgiven. And God has the record of your sins. There is a debt against Him. There is a dirt there that still needs to be washed. And all those pictures yet do not apply because you have not yet come to Christ. So you see, to the degree that we really just look at this and see it as a permission to sin could be the degree that shows that we're not even repentant, we don't even have true faith, and we don't experience this forgiveness in a true and experiential way. Because when we do, and we see the grace of God, okay, beloved, so look, now I went tat by tat, and all these ways that God's people were not worshiping God, they were tired of going to worship, they were thinking it was hard. They weren't praying. When they, when they brought their food offerings, they were complaining it was too much. They, they were complaining that they spent too much money on something they didn't even have to buy. And then what does God do in verse 25? I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. You see what God is doing. This does reproach me. This does grieve me. It does weary me, but I am a merciful God and I will deal with you as if you had none of those. And when you're there in Babylon, after all the years that I said you would be there, the 70 years of captivity, you will come back because I love you. You are my people. He endears this to them even as he says, I am the Lord, your Holy One. And beloved, this is all, of course, what you and I have to remember to help us forget. This is why I have our third point, remembering to help you forget. Now, I will get there in just a little bit. Let me go to our second point. Forgiveness is not remembering. Um, because in, in summary, even, even as we speak of all these points. This, this is what I've been doing. You know, even as I speak of sin as a memory, we see that this is what God's doing. See, He delineates all their sins. But we see now what He's actively doing. He's saying, I'm choosing not to keep that in the record of my mind. See, it is in my mind. He just showed us that it is in His mind. But then He says that He will forget. So, so that literally means I am choosing to not put that in my mind. I am choosing to not remember. That's why forgiveness is not remembering. And that should make you and me very burdened and very grateful and very repentant for our sins. Um... Let me show, um, I had mentioned I would look at that phrase because I think that's so powerful to help us repent, um, to help us appreciate this forgiveness of the Lord and not take it for granted, where God said, Thou hast made me to serve me with thy sins. God is, of course, not saying here, you know, I'm, I'm just forced, I'm going to have to do it. No, He's saying, I'm going to feed you even though you're sinning. And when I'm doing this, I'm serving with your sin. And that does weary me. And he's using terms that we as humans can understand. God, of course, in his sovereign divinity, does not get tired. But he expresses it that way to show how it displeases him. And I want to show you that in God's word, he does this in many ways. And, and you might agree with me that this is one of the most emphatic ways to say it this way, thou hast made me to serve with thy sins. Think, beloved, what that means. How, how God condescends to our needs that he would say this and then not leave us, but say, and I'll forgive you. And beloved, let, let that impress upon your heart how gracious God is to forgive. Let, let me say what Martin um, Henry, Matthew Henry said about this. He said, when we make God's gifts the food and fuel of our lusts 
And His providence, the patron of our wicked projects, especially when we encourage ourselves to continue in sin because grace has abounded, then we make God to serve with our sins. Think, think David. When he sinned in the line that he sinned, God was serving with his sins because God continued to be his God. He continued to have him as a king. But because, of course, he won't allow him to continue in that way, he sent Nathan and, 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 and started blessing the heart of David. But you understand what I mean. And, and this should bring us to then realize this is what God is doing. Lord, I want nothing to do with sin. It should have that effect. Let me show other ways that God shows His disdain of when we sin. One is through the word grieve. That's perhaps the most well-known that God is said to grieve when we sin. That means He is sad. Psalm 95.10 40 years long was I grieved with this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart and they have not known my ways. So, grieving. Another word, all of these, we can understand them more in human terms, in God condescending to our vocabulary. We cannot say that in His divinity He sheds tears. We cannot say that He gets tired. We cannot say that He is broken. This is the third one. He is said to be broken. Look at Ezekiel 6. 10. And they that escape of you shall remember me among the nations whither they shall be carried captives because I am broken with their whorish heart which hath departed from me and with their eyes which go a whoring after their idols. And the word for broken here is to be shattered in pieces. It is used in terms of breaking the heart. So God is saying, you break my heart when you sin. You make me tired. Um, you grieve me. And then a, a, a fourth um, picture is of God being pressed. Pressed with sinners. In, in, in a sense that He is suffering. That, that He is enduring something with a... With a you can imagine the idea that it, that it just makes Him feel afflicted. Look at where it comes from. Amos 2.13 Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. So think of that cart. It is full of sheaves. See that pressing that the cart feels is not pleasant. It is not good. And God is saying, that's how I feel. Your sins are all upon me and I'm having still to sustain you. I'm still forgiving you and blessing you and guiding you. And what do you do? You just sin and sin and sin. I am pressed. I am wearied. I am broken. I grieve. And in Isaiah 1 verse 24 Holy Scripture even puts what could be said, it is a cry out of the heart of God because of sins of His people. Isaiah one twenty four. Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah! See, it's in the texts, a cry. Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. And He's speaking of His people. And it caused a cry to go out of God's heart. And he put it into Holy Scripture. And see, God was, what is he saying with all of this? Yes, yes, he'll, he'll choose to not remember. But that doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean we have a permission to sin. See, he wants us to remember all these things. Forgiveness as not remembering. And this is what remembering helps so that we will also forget. These are the things we have to remember who God is. Now notice the complete opposite. I've, I've already said this, but let me read um, Matthew Henry who, who brought this association. He said, God has not made them to serve with their sacrifices, but they had made Him to serve with their sins. The Master had not tired the servants with his commands, but they had tired him with their disobedience. Then he says, God is tender of our comfort, but we are careless of his honor. Beloved, isn't it amazing to think this, this is the God whom we serve. We get tired of serving him. He never gets tired of forgiving us, even though it does tire him. 
He keeps doing it. Now, some here might be saying, but, you know, when I think of Old Testament worship, it it really was tiring. If you read Leviticus and you read the lining up of sacrifices necessary and the different names and the different order, and and you look at the, the law, and there are ten of them, and then that's the summary. There are many more throughout um, Deuteronomy and Exodus. And there are people who look at the ways of God and they literally say what God is accusing them to say. You get tired of it. And it's exactly the same thing, thing today. People say two services? That, that, that's just too much. An hour? An hour and a half? That's just too much. Beloved, put things in perspective. The people to whom God gave ten laws and then the sacrificial system, they were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. Their baby boys were thrown in the Nile River. They had no freedom. They had no land. They had no religion. They they had no temple, no altar, no priest, no king that was their own. No prophet, no messiah. God then delivered them with a mighty hand. The rivers, the the waters parted into two and they went in safety and their enemies drowned in the same means of salvation for them. In their wanderings, albeit 40 years, they were given water and they were given manna and they arrived in the promised land. Is it too much, beloved, that they have 10 words and some sacrifices? Is it really tiring? Think of the law. Boys and girls, don't let ten make you think it's too many. Four are about God, His person, His worship, His day, and His name. Is that too much? And then the five other laws, the the six other laws, are all about people. Their persons, their leadership, their property, that we wouldn't take it. Their morality, that no one would take it. The truth. Is that too much? Even peoples who have never read the Ten Commandments, in essence, all of those that pertain to people, they keep. And to their false gods, in essence, they keep the four that are owned to God alone. They don't take their, their God's name in vain. And they usually have days of worship. And they honor their God. See, these laws are in the heart. They're simple. They're summarized into two, to love God with all our heart and to love neighbor. And then they're summarized into one, love. See how simple it is. And then the sacrificial system, I kind of summarized it already. If you were too poor, it could be just a turtle dove. And if you were even poorer, you could go to the priest and say, may that lamb be in essence for me. But I do want a turtle dove. Can I find it somehow? They would have procured it for that poor soul. All the peace, all of the offerings that were voluntary, nobody ever had to offer. It was that simple. Now take it to today. We need to think of the reality. God saved us from the Egypt of our own corruption and sin, from the darkness of slavery. Beloved, when you and I were not saved, some of you might not remember that day, but without salvation, you were a slave to sin. There was no religion toward God in that heart. There would be no heart to the king and no king to your heart that you honored. There was no priest and no prophet. You had no promise of heaven. You you had no hope of heaven. The promise was there if you believed, but no hope of it. But God saved you from that. And now you have a new heart. The waters, you could say, of sin and temptation and death have opened and you have walked through dry land and you are on the way to the promised land to live with God forever. Is it too hard to pray maybe once a day when you wake up and again when you sleep and to thank Him for the meals? Is it it too hard to pick up your Bible and read it 
for a few minutes maybe or half an hour in a day? Is it too hard to come to church? Is it too hard to come twice? See, God, this is what God is saying. Because you don't see what I have done, worshiping me is too tired. But remember these things. And you will appreciate his forgiveness, but then also you will learn to forgive, to forgive others even. And this is what I mean in my third point. I just want to bring this reality. There are two things that we need to forget. We need to forget our own temptations and sins lest we sin again. Those are things we need to forget. And we can claim, well, like, I can't forget, it's impossible, it's in my mind, but you can choose to not remember. And then you can also choose to not remember the sins of other people towards you so that you can forgive them. So the way that we appreciate what God has done in forgiving us is we remember all these things He has done and we choose not to remember the sins of the past and temptations. And we will please the Lord when we forgive others who sin against us and we'll be, we'll be forgiving as God forgives. And let me, let me just give a few thoughts in closing. All of this, of course, speaks of God and His grace. See, forgiveness is given to those who have sinned. So it's never something that is deserved. It's never something that we get to a point where we now deserve this forgiveness. It's His grace to us. Let me show you one little element here. As soon as he says this, that he will forgive them, that he will not remember their sins. Verse 26 says, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together, declare thou. That's, that's the third remembrance. Remember I said there are three elements of remember. God says, don't even remember Exodus anymore in the sense of thinking it will be that way because I'm going to do something completely new. Then he says, I will not remember your sins anymore. And here in verse 26, he tells us to put him into remembrance. But notice, notice the inflection. He says, let us plead together, declare thou, that thou mayest be justified. The commentaries that I've read explain this. God is in essence saying, I give you an opportunity to remind me if my action of forgiving you is based on anything about you. Speak so that you may be justified. Remind me. Plead with me. But then God takes the initiative and He says, Thy first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. And if He means the first meaning Adam, who's the ultimate first father, he sinned. If He's thinking of Abraham, who is the father of the people, he also sinned. And if He's thinking of Jacob as the father, who's the most direct father, because all of Israel came from the twelve sons of Jacob, we know Jacob was a sinner too. You see what God is saying? He's going to their very fathers and saying, you have no claim on you for the forgiveness that I'm giving. This this declaring you righteous is not because of your teachers. It is not because of your fathers. It is not, verse 28, because of their princes. It is not because of your sanctuary. Look what he says, that he's given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. He ends this chapter with this thought. But beloved, look at chapter 44 Verse 3, because he continues here this whole reality that he will forgive. Verse 3, he says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thy offspring. So, we're not supposed to remember anything we have done that would cause God to choose to forget, to not remember. It is in essence, as we read in verse 25, for mine own sake. God forgives us because God is gracious. This this next figure that we're seeing of God's forgiveness that He chooses not to remember speaks of His great grace. And when we come before the Lord next Lord's Day, 
around the table. We know in a very direct way it is the cup that speaks of the remission of sins. And I end with this. This is the ultimate thing we are to remember. Christ on the cross took our sins upon Him. So, beloved, I want to leave you with this reality. God is saying, I choose to not remember. I choose to not remember. But there was one place, one moment where God remembered our sins when they were placed upon Jesus. God's mind was full of the record of our sins as if in the bosom of His Son so that the wrath of the Father poured upon Jesus. See, He was choosing to not remember it to your record, but He was remembering it upon Jesus so that His choosing not to remember your sins is completely just because He did remember them upon His Son and they were dealt with by the righteous judge and Christ suffered in our stead. And these, beloved, are the things that we must remember to help us forget. Forget when others sin against us and to forget things of this world that are not to be brought back to our minds lest we sin again and for us to appreciate what our Savior has done. Let us pray. Our gracious, holy God, we thank Thee, Lord, that even though the record of our sin is evident and it is undoubted, that, that it, is, it is registered in the sense that it has been committed. Lord, Thou knowest. And yet, Lord... We thank Thee that in Thy grace and in Thy love there is such a thing as the blotting out of this record and even from Thy mind where Thou would not remember it against us all for the sake of Christ. Lord, we pray that we would listen to the admonitions of of men such as Luther and we think of Apostle Paul that said that we should never allow sin to abound, that grace would abound all the more. Lord, may we not take for granted these great blessings, but that it would be used of Thee to make us sin even less and be so thankful for the forgiveness we have in Christ. We pray and thank Thee in Jesus' name. Amen.